Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Very Motives. Thanks for joining us today. And if you haven't yet, we would love for you to join us on our social medias. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Just search up Buried Motives and we'll be there. We love interacting with you on our socials. We really do. You get to hear from us each week and that's one of the ways we get to hear from you. And have I got a case for you today. Oh my goodness. Lately, I must be all about the drama because all the cases that I've been drawn to have a lot of drama in them. And today is no exception. The case I've chosen for you today is a shocking scandal. Ooh la la, I'm always up for a scandal. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an oldie, but a goodie. I love researching the old cases. Yeah, you are an old-timey kind of gal. It's so true. I love the research of it, especially when I'm scanning the old newspapers for little tidbits. I get a kick out of all the ads that you see. The crazy (laughs) things that were advertised to housewives always gives me a good chuckle. I will forever remember the Lysol ads that you told us about. Some of you who have been listening to us from the beginning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They just make my day. I know times and roles were very different 100 years ago. But I always find the ads so crazy. I came across one ad about shredded wheat being marketed as a declaration of independence for women. Well, of course it is. That's why I eat my shredded wheat. (laughs) That's so crazy. (laughs) If you serve shredded wheat, that meant you were an independent woman, that you weren't slaving over a hot stove for your husband. It's cereal and milk for you, honey, because I got better things to do than cook your bacon. It's just so hilarious. <laughs> or there was another one about cream of wheat and how it could catch you a man if you want to go the exact opposite stream. Do you make like a trench and fill it with cream of wheat so they sink? <laughs> I don't know. But if you can make cream of wheat well, then you can catch a man. Well, there is that saying about a way to a man's heart is through a stomach. It's true. But cream of wheat, would that really do it? Well, I guess there's the challenge of if you can cook something like cream of wheat and make it taste delicious, then you must be able to cook anything. Well, that's a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) But while the ads and the rolls may have evolved, the reasons for becoming a dirtbag remain the same. And I don't know why, but I always have this notion that back in the olden days, people were different and dirtbags and scandal occurred less frequently. But as we talk about today's case, we're going to learn that that just isn't the case. Yeah, I think we kind of have that stereotype for sure. I think we all kind of view the olden days as like little house on the prairie, good values kind of time. And that just wasn't always the case. And definitely not the situation in this case. Because in 1922, the police were alerted by residents of the Silver Lake neighborhood in Los Angeles that they had heard suspicious gun-like sounds coming from the Oostrife residence late on the night of August 22nd, 1922. Ooh, this is going back. It is. When police went in to investigate, they walked into a scene that presented like a burglary gone wrong. They found the homeowner, Fred Oostrife, lying alone on the living room floor, dead. (gasps) He had been shot three times, twice in the chest and once in the head. The last shot had been the fatal blow to the 43-year-old man. There was no signs of a murder weapon at the scene. 
As they looked around the house, it looked like it had been rapidly searched, with some things overturned, and when they searched the house for other residents, they found Dolly, Fred's wife, locked in their bedroom closet. There are differing reports about if Dolly had been unconscious when she was discovered or awake and crying out for her dead husband. That she was unconscious was most commonly reported in newspapers at the time, but later movies and documentaries would report the latter. And maybe the change was for dramatic flair, or maybe more information was made available after the newspapers were printed. But either way, the police were able to find the key for the locked closet door on the floor a few feet away, and they let Dolly out of the closet. She confirmed to police that she had gone to the couple's bedroom after a night out with her husband at a social event. And while she was facing her closet, she was pushed from behind, into the closet, and then locked in. Dolly confirmed the suspicion of a burglary when she pointed out that Fred's diamond-studded watch was missing. Dolly's story, though, didn't ring true to the investigating officer, Herman Klein. He was an old-fashioned, stone-faced kind of guy, and Dolly's whole victim act was a little bit too over-the-top dramatic for him. Dolly was immaculately dressed, and she carefully presented herself. Klein had never been one to trust a pretty face. (laughs) His recorded comments about Dolly are pretty wild. Really? So he's casting a snap judgment right from the beginning. Yes, he does not like Dolly at all. But in fairness, her story didn't seem to add up to what the detectives were observing. While there was no watch on Frank's wrist, there was still a large wad of cash in his pockets. Oh. In fact, the only thing that had seemed to disappear was the man's watch. When the police questioned Dolly about her relationship with her husband, she adamantly denied over and over again that she and her husband had ever fought. This was very suspicious to the detective because he was very convinced that even the most amiable couples fought sometimes. Oh, everybody has at least disagreements. Yes. And she said, no, we never disagree. We never fight. And so when they find her locked in this closet, she's just all put together and poised. Not like how most of us would have like raccoon eyes from our mascara running down our faces. Our hair would be disheveled. We would be frantic and exhausted from trying to like escape the closet. Right. Which if she had been awake, that's how you would think that she would appear. Had she been knocked unconscious right away after getting home that night, then maybe she might still look all put together. But if you were knocked unconscious, you would not be so poison put together. And you'd be confused. Right. When you came to. So her story isn't jiving with what the police are observing. And this detective is trained to look for these things. Right. So his spidey senses are going off. But there was nothing concrete to disprove Dolly's story either. And the evidence at the scene and testimony from neighbors supported her version of events. A neighbor told police that they had seen a dark figure running from the house shortly after hearing the shots. And then there was the fact that Dolly herself had been locked in a closet that only locked from the outside. She couldn't have locked herself inside of it. Okay, so there was a third party there at some point in time. That's what it's shaping up to look like. When the autopsy results came back, Detective Klein was even more convinced that Dolly must have had something to do with her husband's death. The bullet wounds were determined to have come from a 25 caliber handgun, a very small gun, that at the time was regarded as a woman's weapon due to its lack of size and power. (laughs) Just what every woman needs. A cute little toy for her purse. That's right. (laughs) So the detective started to dig into the couple's background, all at the same time that many who knew Fred and Dolly adamantly denied that Fred had any enemies and that Dolly would ever have anything to do with his death. 
Fred was the middle child of Willem and Johanna and was born on December 8th in 1887. He grew up in Chicago with his older brother and younger sister in a loving German immigrant home. As a young adult, he proved to be a shrewd businessman and became quite successful running a textile factory that manufactured mainly aprons in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. It was at the factory where it was believed that he first met Dolly. She was believed to have been working as one of his employees who caught the eye of her employer with her bubbly personality and vivacious smile. Dolly's birth date is a little bit of a debate among historical records. Whether it was the record keeping at the time or done purposely is unclear. Although I will point out that subsequent reports of her birth date are always reported as later and later, always making her younger. (laughs) How convenient. Yeah. It's my belief that she was shaving years off her age. It's actually almost comical how you can track her age through government census where she would have declared her own age. (laughs) I didn't know that we can do that. (laughs) We can just make ourselves younger. (laughs) Dolly did. In 1900, she declared that she was 23 on the census. In the 1905 census, she was 27. In 1910, 30. And in 1920, she declared that she was only 41. (laughs) The math ain't mathin'. No, it doesn't add up. Her last birthday declared on her death record was very close to the recorded date of her first marriage. So I think she was padding her age. Oh, definitely. So it sounds like she's kind of glamorous. She really cares about what people think of her trying to stay young and youthful and beautiful. Yes, exactly. Dolly's given name was Walburga Barbara Korschel. Can't imagine why she preferred to go by Dolly. Oh, Dolly is such a cute name. And there is never any reason given why she chose that particular name. But Dolly is what she went by. Yeah, because that would have been before Dolly Parton. Oh, way before Dolly Parton. Oh, maybe because people say, oh, you're such a doll. Maybe. Dolly was raised on a farm in the Midwest by her own German immigrant parents. She moved into town, quitting school in grade eight, and began to work at Fred's textile factory. So was she a teenager when they met? She was. When the two were married in December of 1897, I believe she was around 17. Okay. So not terribly young. No. Especially for the time. Yeah. But when they were married, Fred and Dolly had all the makings of a power couple at the turn of the century in Milwaukee. Fred was a wealthy businessman running a successful family apron manufacturing company, and Dolly was a comely, friendly woman full of charisma and charm. Three years after their marriage, they welcomed a little boy into their life on August 20th, 1900. This would surprisingly be the only child for Fred and Dolly, which is quite unusual for the time and even more unusual when you come to learn about Dolly's hypersexual nature and lack of birth control at the time. Ooh la la. She was a wildcat in the sack. (laughs) With a name like Dolly, you have to be. (laughs) Yep. The little boy, Raymond Harold, was the apple of both of his parents' eyes. See, why can't the story just stay like this? Right? Cute little couple, little baby. This should be the end. But it's not. No, why she gotta be a dirtbag? She's a total dirtbag. But she's not the only one. Mm. But when this little boy came into their world, they were both super proud of their little boy. Fred was proud of this little boy that would one day succeed him in his family business, and Dolly was a doting mother, tending to her son's every need. They were both devastated, though, when at the age of nine, Raymond succumbed to illness in July 1910, just before his 10th birthday. Oh, that is so sad. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is a turning point for their relationship. The death of their son was a very difficult thing for their marriage to endure. And that still is today, 
I think there's a high divorce rate for couples who have lost a child. Oh, I'm sure it would be, for most marriages, one of the most difficult things to overcome. But instead of growing together in their grief, Dolly and Fred grew apart. Fred had always been a little bit of a drinker, but after the death of his son, this was taken to a whole new level. There are reports that he was a mean drunk and frequently violent. Dolly found solace for her grief and misery in the attention of other men. She was reported to have many lovers that would come and visit her at the house during the day when Fred was at work. It seemed that Dolly had a very large sexual appetite that Fred, with all of his drinking, just could not keep up with. (laughs) Oh my. But you can kind of see that this is just two different coping mechanisms. He's turning to the bottle to numb his pain, and she's turning to men to do the same thing. Not making one right or wrong, but you can understand their behavior. Absolutely. Because she wasn't stepping out before her son died, correct? No, I think she was. Oh, never mind then. (laughs) Well, you didn't say that part. (laughs) She had so many affairs that it's really hard to tell when they started to occur, but the frequency of them definitely increased or they started when her son died. Okay, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that maybe they started (laughs) afterwards because it fits my theory. Let's go with that. (laughs) She definitely was looking for attention from outside sources whenever it began. But in 1913, something happened that would change the future course of both Fred and Dolly's lives. Dolly was a frequenter of the factory during its working hours. She'd worked there before the couple's marriage, and after the death of Raymond, she returned there once again. And I'm not sure if she was actually working there. There are several reports that say she did, but I really can't imagine a wealthy man's wife in 1910 working if it wasn't out of necessity. And Fred was very wealthy, a millionaire. Selling aprons was a good business, and he was a shrewd and frugal businessman. A millionaire in the 1930s? Uh Uh-huh. So there wasn't really any reason for Dolly to be working. But some reports say that she was working, and other reports said that she was just visiting the factory frequently. Maybe she was just there supervising and bossing people around, making sure things were running properly. That's what it seems more like. Yeah. Or maybe she was just visiting to get out of the house. It was a lonely place for her now that Raymond had passed away. And Fred, in his penny-pinching ways, refused to hire any maid or cook that would have been a constant companion at the house. Oh, that is really sad. Mm -hmm. Hence why she used the milkman and delivery boys for companions. (laughs) He should have just hired a house cleaner. Yep. But you know what? Now that you said that he's a millionaire from selling aprons, and with the ads you just told us about, I can see why he made so much money off of aprons, because that was what was targeted to women. You'd be in the home. Everyone had to have an apron. Yeah, aprons were a huge thing and they were a status symbol. If you didn't make your apron, if you actually got to buy an apron, it was a status showing that you had enough money to purchase an apron. Yeah, you could have a new one for every day of the week. Yeah. So when Dolly visited the factory, she did play a role amongst the female workers that were busy sewing on the work floor. When Fred would storm through his textile factory and belittle his employees, she would follow behind and smooth ruffled feathers. She was well-liked at the factory because of this. It was while Dolly was on the textile floor, among all the sewing machines, that she met Otto Senhuber, a 16-year-old sewing machine repair man slash boy. He was good with his hands. Oh my, but he's 16. She's got to be at least getting close to 30 by this point in time. Well, depending on which age she gave at the time, she's around 30. It is really sad because you can just imagine how their house would just be filled with such sad memories Mm -hmm. and why she'd want to be out of the house. 
It's so true. She just didn't want to be there. And so that's why I think she was spending more and more time at the factory. Right. And her husband's pulling away or they're going further and further apart. So then she sees this shiny brand new little 16 year old who's good with his hands and giving her attention. Right. Otto's history is a little bit more difficult to figure out than Dolly's or Fred's. There are multiple conflicting stories about his early life. The most reported and substantiated information come from existing documentation was that he was born to Jacob Klein and Mary Weir on July 16, 1897. And by the age of three, he was an orphan in the New York Foundling Hospital and Children's Aid Society. Oh, that is sad. Mm -hmm. By 1900, he had gone to live and most likely was adopted by George and Josephine Sanhuber in Milwaukee with six other siblings. Oh, wow. Otto was described as a timid boy and at the age of 16 had quit school to work as a repairman at the local factory, having only completed a grade six education. That's where he was spotted by Dolly and deemed to be a catch. But he's a child. It's not a child in the 1900s. Age is different. Well, age is different, but we've talked about this before. That kind of age gap when you're a bit older isn't such a big deal. But when he's only 16 in your meeting and you're around 30... That's a big age gap. There's a lot of developmental differences taking place. 33 to 16 is a huge age gap. Yeah, but you can see the appeal on both sides. Mm -hmm. So you can probably guess where the story is going and who killed Fred. But this love triangle has so many dramatic turns that it's anything but typical. Dolly puts in a request to Fred one day that he send a repairman to their home because their sewing machine is not working properly. (laughs) It doesn't look good for Fred, who is a textile guru, not to have a functioning sewing machine for his own wife to use. She is a sly little fox. So off goes sweet little timid Otto into a scene right out of The Graduate. Oh no. There are some that theorize that Dolly was initially attracted to Otto because he reminded her of Raymond. But I'm not sure if it was this mother-son bond that attracted Dolly. I can kind of buy into Otto's side of seeking a motherly figure. But really, I don't know how you translate relating a boy to your dead son into a sexual relationship. Yeah, ew. Yeah, it's all just a little too gross for me. But that could have been happening subconsciously even. Maybe. And they're both dirtbags, so maybe their thinking's a little off. Yeah. But that has been theorized that that was one of the motivating factors for Dolly to pick Otto. Right. And you said Otto turns out to be a dirtbag? And I believe that, but at the beginning here, it's almost like manipulation. Oh, and I think it'll continue to be manipulation. Okay. There are some very dramatic recounts of the event that happened on Dolly's front door that day. And I'm sure with the passage of time and the amount of times that this particular case has been portrayed in the media, that there have been some embellishments. But for most reports, Dolly answered the door wearing very little and pointed the young man into one of the bedrooms where the supposedly broken sewing machine was located. She probably broke it two minutes before he got there. (laughs) Conveniently, it was stored in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. As the repair progressed, Dolly made sure that she was present in case Otto needed anything, all the while positioning herself on the bed to reveal even more skin. Oh my goodness. This is like the start of a bad adult movie. And that's what his confession sounds like. The way she presented herself to him was not something that he was about to refuse. There was no misconstruing what she was telling him. No, what she was offering for sure. I'm not sure how much attention the sewing machine got that day, 
But the attention that Dolly received was memorable, and Otto was completely taken with this newfound thrill of life. It was stitched in her memory. (laughs) (laughs) It was. The two began an illicit affair. In a place and time that doesn't scream scandalous affair, Otto and Dolly, then in her 30s, began to find wherever and whenever they could get together. Cheap hotels, Otto's boarding house, and even Dolly's marital bed were all frequent places for romps in the hay. Oh my, she was really making a man out of him. Oh yes. Their shenanigans were so frequent that it wasn't long before neighbors started to notice that it was the same young man who was always being seen with Dolly whenever Fred wasn't around. And no woman has that many sewing machines to be fixed. No, not at all. Dolly tried to pass Otto off as her vagabond half-brother whenever anyone asked her directly about the young man that she was spending time with. But it wasn't a story anyone was buying. There were some reports that Fred actually confronted Dolly about the neighbor's reports. Eventually, it became obvious that it was too dangerous to continue the affair for Dolly. Even knowing that she couldn't continue the affair, Dolly had no intention of leaving her cushy life of being the wife of a wealthy businessman, no matter how unfulfilling he was in bed. Financial stability was really important to her. Because she'd been brought up so poor. Right. So the logical solution was to end the affair. Say goodbye to Otto, send him on his merry way, now a very educated man in the ways of pleasuring a woman, and go back to her past ways of getting her itch scratched with her steady supply of repairmen at her beck and call. So getting it scratched by multiple people instead of the danger of being with just one. That's right. That to me would have been the logical solution. Well, that's not what she chooses. It wasn't the solution that Dolly came up with at all. There was no way she wanted to give up her piece on the side either. Instead, Dolly decides to convince Otto, and I'm sure that a 17-year-old with raging hormones didn't need a lot of convincing, to quit his job at the factory and move into her attic. That is so wild. She has a lot of nerve. Yeah, she does. It's almost like a little puppy dog to her or like an object that I'll just keep in the attic and bring it out to play with when husband's away. That way, though, no one would see him coming and going and they could continue their love affair in peace. And as an added bonus, Otto would have a rent-free place to live and no longer have to spend his days earning a living. Instead, he could use his time to pursue his interest in writing. While Otto was a very timid fellow on the outside, he was quite an imaginative young man on the inside and aspired to becoming an author. And not just an author of any old topic, but he wanted to write pulps. Pulps were the erotic romance novels that you see in drugstores today. Oh, while he was getting an education on that, that's for sure. Uh Uh-huh. For 10 cents, the reader would get a juicy story about sex, murder, addiction, and madness. The stories were famous for their cover art, so you can see how this whole situation would be completely appealing to Otto. So he agreed and took up shop in the attic, which Dolly furnished with only a cot, a desk, and a chamber pot. Oh my. There, while Fred was home, Otto would pass the time writing his stories and reading books that Dolly brought for him each week from the library. When Fred was not home, Otto and Dolly would get it on, sometimes multiple times a day. And I mean multiple. In one report, I read it was up to eight times a day. Eight? Eight. Well, he is 17, we have to remember. That's right. But eight is a lot. (laughs) It is a lot of time. Both Dolly and Otto were very satisfied with this new living arrangement. But you know what? They're both actually in their sexual prime. 
That's right. They're mismatched in age, but their sexual primes are adding right up together. They were so happy with this living arrangement that it continued for the next five years. That is just remarkable that he could stay in the attic for five years and Fred had no idea. Well, there were some kinks to be worked out. The attic room was right above Dolly and Fred's bedroom. And Dolly couldn't just stop having sex with her husband after years of trying to get him to have more sex. So Otto got an earful of their lovemaking, which didn't impress him too much. For him, the relationship was much more than just sex, and he was jealous. Otto would take to clearing his throat as a signal for Dolly to hear and tell Fred to keep it down. Or someone might hear. Oh, wow. Could you imagine that situation? No. Being in the middle of a sexual act with your husband and hearing your teenage boyfriend clearing his throat upstairs. Keep it down. You're bothering me. And how degrading for Fred. He has no idea that his wife's lover is listening to them have sex. Oh, the whole thing is so degrading for Fred. Dolly tried to rationalize with the young man that this is just how things had to be. To make up for his hurt feelings, Dolly would spend more and more time at home away from the factory to spend time with Otto since she was his only human connection. They, or more accurately Otto, would clean the house during the day when they weren't having sex. During his trial, Otto would pride himself on all of the compliments that Dolly would receive about her immaculately kept home. This is just unreal. What a mastermind she is. She's getting all the sex she wants. He's keeping her house clean. She's coming out smelling like a rose. Yeah, all of the good stuff from both worlds. Yeah, and with Otto not having any other human interaction, that's giving her that much more power over him. Because she's it. She's all he has. Absolutely. He becomes completely dependent on her. Yeah, which is usually what an abuser will do. Mm -hmm. Keep them isolated and dependent on them. And that's exactly what Dolly did. The other thing that Dolly would do that's just like an abuser is give gifts. She would frequently try to placate Otto with small tokens of favor, usually from her husband's cigar box. The missing cigars would inevitably be discovered and then have to be explained. And the same would go for food that she would give him. When Fred did notice things missing or hear unexplained noises to the point where he thought someone might actually be in their house, Dolly would play it off, sometimes taking the tactic of, poor Fred, you've been working so hard, or at other times, blaming it on Fred always being drunk. So she's gaslighting him. She's totally gaslighting him. This woman. She knows how to get what she wants. She ain't messing with cream of wheat, that's for sure. Nope. At one point, Fred had actually seen Otto moving across one of the upstairs windows when he was out in the yard. He came running in, screaming about an intruder. Dolly, the brave, independent type, told her husband to relax and not to work himself up while she went to investigate. Of course, when she returned, she assured Fred that it had all been a part of his imagination. Dolly would later scold Otto for looking out the windows. Wow. He's like a prisoner. He is like a little prisoner. It's pretty sad. But he was a willing prisoner for as much as he knew. Dolly also had to manage Otto's budding writing career. To do this, she got a secret post office box to send off Otto's stories and receive responses. She also took it upon herself to manage Otto's income that he was earning under a pen name writing pulps. Wow. So he was actually publishing stories and making an income. So he was good at writing. Yeah. And I can just even imagine them going through the story together. How that would have just fueled their little flames. 
oh, maybe we should try this and put that in the next story. Yeah. Or did it get them all riled? Because he maybe wrote about some of the things that they were doing. He had to have been. She's his only form of experience in that category. So she was his whole inspiration? Yeah. If it was, Otto was perfectly happy with this inspiration. Content to receive his meager allowance from Dolly from his earnings, he believed her when she said she was just keeping it all safe for his future. After five years, the relationship had settled a little from what it was in the beginning and began to look more like a mother-son relationship, as described by Otto later. Although they were still having sex. Okay. But Otto describes the relationship kind of maturing and that they weren't having sex as much as they did in the beginning and that he kind of viewed it more as a mother-son relationship. Because she was taking control. That's right. But she really had been from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Otto described himself as submissive to Dolly's wishes, obedient like a son would be, and a slave to her sexual demands. Totally. So she's still ruling the roost. In 1918, Fred was looking to expand his business enterprises and escape his seemingly haunted house. (laughs) He had even tried tranquilizers to calm the noises he heard in his head, but that hadn't worked. Well, she's totally gaslit him into believing that it's all in his head. Mm -hmm. She's terrible. Dolly was actually the one to recommend he go to a doctor and get tranquilizers. Yeah, because it would incapacitate him even more and she could romp around the house as much as she wanted. Yep. She is so selfish. She's very selfish. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Fred started thinking that to stop from going crazy, he needed to get away. Los Angeles was the location of his new factory, and this possible move presented yet another problem for Dolly to solve. How do you move your lover to your new home without your husband finding out? Well, I guess you don't. You plan a murder. Nope. She moves them. She does. She does. And she didn't even have to stress about it too hard. One night in 1918, after returning early from a social party, and a lot of reports said it was like this German beer party, Fred returned home earlier than expected alone without Dolly because they had gotten into a fight at the party. Fred entered his kitchen only to find Otto sitting at the kitchen table munching down on his leg of lamb. Missing food and leftovers was one of the things that Fred had noticed but had been convinced he was going crazy about. When Fred demanded to know what this strange man was doing there, Otto was quick on his feet and played up the vagabond act saying, I'm hungry. 
he was promptly expelled from the house. And Fred didn't recognize him. No, he didn't pay any attention to his employees. And this is an employee that had left five years ago. And had been a teenager and has now grown into a man. That's right. So he didn't recognize him at all. Ooh. When Fred proudly told Dolly that he had solved their ghost in the attic problem, she wasn't overly pleased. She's like, wait, <laughs> that was mine. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> she met up with Otto and they made a new plan. Because she anticipated that she and Fred would be moving to Los Angeles, she told Otto to take his money and move to Los Angeles prior to them until she could figure out a way to get him back into their new house. So dutifully, that's what Otto did. He moved to Los Angeles and got a job cleaning apartment buildings. Well, he was good at it. That's right. After all, he had been honing his skill for some years now. Yeah. This was not a pleasant time for Otto. He describes it as being very miserable. Now living outside the attic without Dolly taking care of him, the world was a harsh place for him. I'm sure it was all the sunlight. <laughs> That's true. He never he, went out in the day. But you can totally see how he'd be feeling that way because they got together when he was still a teenager and he had spent all those formative years locked up in the attic. Mm -hmm. He didn't even have to think about what he was going to eat. He wasn't going to go anywhere. He just had to think about his writing and pleasing his married woman. And it seemed like for him, social interactions were already a difficult thing. And so hiding up in the attic had been a very comforting thing for him with mm -hmm. only one other person to interact with. And now he was thrown out into the world to interact with a whole bunch of different people. Yeah, and just make it on your own, kid. Mm -hmm. It was super uncomfortable for him. Meanwhile, Dolly was working on the move with Fred. They settled temporarily in a Los Angeles hotel while they started searching for a very particular type of house, one that met Dolly's specifications. The house had to have an addict. Not a common thing in California. Mm. While staying at the hotel, she once again established an affair with Otto, meeting in different hotel rooms while Fred was at work, and then eventually moved Otto into the attic of her new mansion on North St. Andrew's Place in the affluential area of Silver Lake. And the twisted love triangle resumed. Things carried on pretty much the same as before. Otto and Dolly continued to have sex frequently and clean the house together. And they even took up a new hobby of making bathtub gin as prohibition took hold over the states. <laughs> and I went down a whole rabbit hole about bathtub gin as well. Oh, I'm sure you did. <laughs> it's actually not made in the bathtub. Really? No, that's what I totally thought. Oh, because I was like, yeah, that's gross. Yeah. No. <laughs> Apparently the bottles were really big and to transfer the liquid between one bottle to another, they would put the bottles in the bathtub. It was the catch-all or the basin. Yeah. For spillage. Yes. Ah. Okay. I learned something new today. It was an interesting rabbit hole for me. But this is what they spent their time doing. Having sex, making gin, and cleaning the house. Sounds perfect. <laughs> Especially when you're not the one cleaning. <laughs> Fred, however, continued to hear noises in his new house, although less frequently because Otto was no longer staying directly above their bedroom, a much more comfortable arrangement for all that were involved in this love triangle. And poor Fred doesn't even know he's in a love triangle. He doesn't at all. As Fred and Dolly established their new social life in Los Angeles, Otto had more time in the evenings to sneak out under the cover of night to take walks for exercise. All seemed to be going well until the fateful night when the police were called to the residence on August 22, 1922. Police were immediately suspicious of Dolly, but they couldn't find any smoking gun that incriminated her, and they also couldn't uncover anything about Otto, so the matter had to be dropped for a time. 
Dolly and Otto, thinking that their cover-up story had worked, moved to a new house on North Beach Drive, and Dolly collected a sizable inheritance from Fred's estate. Interestingly, Dolly thought it was unwise for Otto just to appear in her life, so she convinced Otto that it would be best if he continued his former routine and continued to live in secret in the attic so that no one would become suspicious of him or of them and the circumstances around Fred's death. Okay, that's a total dirtbag move. She just likes having him as this little toy that she can put away when she's done with. Right. But to Otto, all of this made sense, so he agreed. At 42, Dolly was still a sensuous and convincing woman, but her needs were no longer pacing with Otto's stamina. Almost immediately after Fred's death, she continues with and starts several affairs with other men other than Otto and uses those connections to fulfill some of her other needs as well. She convinces a businessman, Roy Klum, who she had been having an affair with prior to the murder, to dispose of the gun in the La Brea tar pits, and another neighbor she convinced to bury the other gun in his own backyard. She told each of them that she just happened to have two guns that happened to be the same kind her husband was shot with, and that she was afraid that the police would get the wrong idea. And they're like, sure, honey buns, I'll help you out. Uh-huh. You little damsel in distress. Her feminine wiles certainly came in handy and helped her bend men to mindlessly do her bidding for her. While dealing with the estate, Dolly also became involved with yet another love interest, Herman Shapiro, the estate lawyer. What began as flirting soon progressed to dating and then a sexual relationship. And you might be wondering how Otto was feeling about all these new rivals. Oh, he knew about them? Yes. He took it in stride, even referring to Roy as the basement lover while he remained the upstairs one. Okay. So bizarre. Yeah, that's a good word for it. But Roy had a different viewpoint, and he and Dolly would soon split on not too nice of terms. Seeking revenge, Roy ratted Dolly out for asking him to get rid of the gun for her. The other neighbor would eventually bring forward the other gun, too, when he learned about the charges brought against Dolly. At the same time, Detective Klein had learned about Herman walking around with a very nice diamond-studded watch that matched the description of the one missing from the murder scene. When he confronted Herman, Herman told him that Dolly had given it to him, and this for Detective Klein was just all too suspicious to let go. Dolly was arrested on July 12, 1923, but she claimed amnesia and said that she had never seen the watch before. What? Mm-hmm. But the detective had already done the legwork. He had matched the watch to the one a Milwaukee jeweler had made for Fred. The gun was able to be recovered from the side of the tar pits. Unfortunately, though, it couldn't be matched to Fred's murder because of the damage done to the gun. Mm. With only the watch as evidence, which is circumstantial at best, Dolly's lawyer was able to get the charges against her dropped. But the charges would eventually lead to her getting caught because while Dolly had been being held in prison, she was very concerned about Otto, who was sequestered in her attic. How would he know it was safe to come out and who would bring him his food? So to solve that problem, she asked Herman to go to the house to take food to her vagabond half-brother that just happened to be living in her attic. (laughs) When Herman gets Otto to come out of the attic through his little half-door, Otto recognizes him as the man that Dolly has been telling him about, and the two men become friendly, and Otto was super chatty with his new male friend that Dolly trusted with their secret. 
Otto felt that Herman had Dolly's stamp of approval, and so he just starts spilling everything. He must have felt very confident in telling his own secrets. Over the course of their very brief friendship, he opens right up to Herman. The story that Otto told Herman was this. On August 22, 1922, Fred and Dolly had been out for the evening. They were quarreling when they returned. Otto heard the noisy row. Then he heard a loud thud and the sound of Dolly screaming. Otto thought Fred was beating Dolly. Actually, she had just slipped on a throw rug. But what he thought he heard was them having a fight and Fred knocking her around. He grabbed the two twenty-five caliber guns that Dolly kept and rushed out of his little cubby door that was only waist high and ran down the stairs. As Otto burst into the room, Fred recognized him as the culprit that he had found in his home before, back in Wisconsin, leisurely helping himself to a leg of lamb. Flying into a rage, Fred tackled Otto, grabbing the guns and then putting his hands around Otto's neck. One or both of the guns went off and a panicked Otto pulled the trigger again and again, shooting Fred a total of three times. It plays out just like a movie, honestly. It does. And can you imagine how angry Fred would be? Like, it's you. Yeah. Well, even just the shock of that, like making that realization and things would have happened so fast, his brain probably didn't even have that much time to process it. I don't know that it automatically would have been, oh, this is my wife's lover it's probably just like this guy followed us here he's a stalker like who is this guy yeah i gotta get this guy he probably thinks he's defending dolly probably the thought of a lover probably never crossed his mind no because who has a lover and hides them in the attic right it's just so bizarre upon realizing that fred was dead both dolly and otto needed a story Otto, ever the storyteller, proudly came up with the idea of a burglary gone wrong and locked dolly in the closet Herman, a smart and shrewd lawyer himself, went straight to Dolly's criminal defense lawyer to seek his professional opinion. After all, he was only an estate lawyer at this point. It probably went something like this. Hypothetically, what would you do if your girlfriend's sex slave that she's been hiding in the attic just confessed to committing murder? And he thought it was defense, but it wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) I don't even know how you begin to tell that story. Where would you start? No. As a lawyer, Herman returned to give the sound advice to Otto, his rival, the confessed sex slave, to conveniently hit the road and told him to keep his mouth shut. So he got to continue his relationship with Dolly. Oh, he's a dirtbag too. Uh-huh. So rather than let's do the right moral thing, let's use this to get what I want. That's right. And I'd be really scared to then want to be with a woman who I know was okay with covering up her husband's murder. Oh, Herman's quite okay with it. He tells Otto, look, buddy, if you really love Dolly, you need to leave and not come back. And Otto takes his new friend's advice. He doesn't want any harm to come to Dolly. Otto, dedicated to doing the right thing for Dolly, he leaves and he gets a job as a janitor in San Francisco before going to Vancouver to work as a porter under his new pen name, Walter Klein. As Walter Klein, he married a Canadian woman named Matilda. And Matilda would describe her husband as a kind and dutiful husband. I don't doubt that he was, to be honest. Well, I'm sure Dolly taught him quite well. Yeah. Dolly couldn't have been too upset over Otto's departure, though, because she continued on with Herman for seven more years. Wow, she gets away with this for so long. Until they had a falling out over money. I'm not sure when Dolly was going to learn to keep her secrets and her lover separate, but she still hadn't learned to do so. 
Maybe it was because she was unaware that Otto had spilled all the beans to Herman. But after the breakup with a scorned Herman, he promptly went to the police with the full story about the man Dolly had kept hidden in the attic and the murder that they had committed and covered up. Ooh, he was out for revenge. He was. How many lovers did that to her? Yeah, that's true. With an affidavit from Herman, both Otto and Dolly were indicted on the 11th of April, 1930. Imagine Otto's wife, how shocked she'd be. And all of the twisted details hit the newspapers. Oh. When it hit, it went viral, or at least what would be the equivalent of back then. Usually, to find a newspaper article of a murder trial that happened over 100 years ago, it can take some digging. But the sheer volume of papers that covered this story made it pretty easy to find. Wow. The sexually sordid details had Dolly being called a naughty vamp, and Otto became known as the Batman or Garrett lover. Dolly was charged with conspiracy in the murder of her husband, and Otto, now going by Walter Klein, was charged with first-degree murder. When Otto was brought in for questioning, he originally confessed to everything. He told investigators that he had an overpowering love for Dolly. On that fateful night, he explained he believed Dolly was going to be killed, and he shot the husband to protect her. He even took officers to the house and showed them where he had hid in the attic. He agrees to plead guilty to second-degree murder, but the prosecution wouldn't go for the plea. There was too much hype around the story, and they wanted to seek the death penalty. Oh my. And this is eventually going to come back and bite them in the butt. Otto does really well in front of the jury of six men and six women, as he convinces them that he was more of a puppet for Dolly, saying, quote, I made up the beds and changed the linen about two times a week. They love to sleep clean, and I made up the beds for them and put away their clothes and dusted Fred's clothes because he had some beautiful things, and I would keep them in order for him and dust them and dust his shoes, you know, so he would look neat always, and then I would wash the dishes if he wasn't home. And when he was home, he would wash them. And Mrs. Erstry would dry them because I couldn't then. And I would get the vegetables clean. And they were clean. Everybody praised her. And scrubbed the floor and kept it clean. And I kept the floor neat. And you know, she loved to have a beautiful floor. And I dusted it, you know. Wow. He described his time away from the addict and Dolly as, quote, so long I didn't measure it in hours. I was frantic until I returned. It was almost like he was Fred's wife, too. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he actually was taking care of Fred with affection, almost. He was proud of the work that he was doing in their home. Yeah. Otto even described going on hunger strikes to get more of Dolly's attention as she became increasingly bored of him and submitted to her will in everything as a way to make her happy and to make her want to spend time with him. That's so sad. Because I really do believe he thought he was defending Dolly. Oh, I 100% believe he believed he was defending Dolly. When it came to describing how the murder took place, he tried to recant his earlier confession by saying the only reason he had said those things was because the police had said that Dolly would get into trouble otherwise if he didn't give his full confession. <laughs> sly. Well, sly, but it just goes to show that he was willing to do anything mm -hmm. to keep her safe. Yeah, even fall on the sword. Yeah. It was obvious to everyone what had occurred that night. The jury believed Otto's story, though, of being a slave and the story about him wanting to protect Dolly against her violent husband. And so when they brought back a guilty conviction, it wasn't for first-degree murder. It was for manslaughter. Oh, wow. The tricky part about that conviction 
was that the statute of limitations at the time for manslaughter was only three years. (gasps) And that time had already passed. No way. So he gets to actually walk free. Yeah. So Otto was released as a free man, having been convicted of murder. (gasps) That is wild. What's so wild is that he was willing to plead a second degree murder. Yeah. And these statutes of limitations, I don't think should ever be in effect for a murder charge of any kind. Yeah, it does seem so bizarre. During Dolly's trial on August 14, 1930, Dolly admitted that Otto shot her husband and covered it up to look like a robbery, but contended that she took no part in either and only lied to the police to protect Otto. Dolly wept on the stand and put up a great act as she declared that she loved Fred despite having a lover in the house for over 10 years and said that, quote, I didn't believe he meant to do it and I didn't want to expose my life to the world having him in the house. And so that's why she went along with Otto's story. The prosecution painted her as a cold-blooded dirtbag that had manipulated another man to do her dirty business of murder. The prosecution reminded the jury that, quote, If there is any sympathy to be felt in this case, do not waste it on this woman. (laughs) All of your sympathy should be with the dead man who wanted a home and a loving wife and who was shot down in his own home when he discovered the lover of his unfaithful wife in his own living room. (laughs) So true. The prosecution's final words to the jury were simple. Quote, hang this woman. Whoa. Like I get where he's coming from. But this wasn't a premeditated planned murder. No, but remember, this is 1930, and this is a woman that has manipulated men. Oh, yeah. So it's even worse. Yeah. And even for a woman to have multiple lovers, if the shoe was on the other foot, it wouldn't be looked at so badly. But because this is a woman, I guess I can see that. But this definitely was not first degree murder. No, and that wasn't the verdict that was reached. Actually, no verdict was reached. What? It was a hung jury. Wow. And the indictment against Dolly was officially dropped in 1936. (laughs) Both Otto and Dolly got away unpunished for Fred's murder and their betrayal. They didn't even retry her. Nope, they didn't. They just let her go. (gasps) Otto continued with the name Walter M. Klein. He and Matilda stayed in California and he died at the age of 60 in March of 1948. Dolly kept a more social profile and started yet another relationship, this time with her much younger business advisor, Ray Hendrick. When Dolly met him, she was playing a much younger woman. And I don't know how a man does not look at her past and see red flags everywhere. They're not looking at the flags, it sounds like. (laughs) No, not the right red flags anyway. The two dated for over 30 years and eventually were married on March 24th in 1961 when Dolly was on her deathbed dying from cancer. Two short weeks later, she passed away on April 8th, 1961. Her death record and Ray stated that she was only 65, but relatives confirmed that she was actually 82. Whoa, but looked young enough to pass for 65. Yep. Upon her death, Her business partner and now husband inherited a sizable fortune that had begun with Fred's money. Wow. And that is the case of the twisted love triangle of the two dirtbags, Otto Sanhuber and Dolly Erstry, whose secret lives led to the death of an innocent man they lied to for almost 10 years. Wow, Melissa. That was drama-filled. 
I told you I'm all about the drama lately. Yeah, you weren't lying. I just can't even believe that they got away with it for so long and then were not held responsible. It's just so mind-boggling. It is. You painted a very vivid picture. Well, it was a vivid story to research. It sounds like it. But I do love researching the cases that we cover. And so do I. And that's why I'll bring you another case next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. Testing, testing. You're gone. Are you turned off? I am turned on now. (laughs) Court said that she was found like screaming out, oh, Fred, oh, Fred. He should have been bringing home the bacon in more ways than one. (laughs) It's so crazy. It almost doesn't seem real that something like this could happen. It doesn't. That's why it makes so many great movies about this story. But I love her at the same time because it's such a role reversal. (laughs) Gotta find an auto. (laughs) I love when you cover the mic. (laughs) Because even when you're, you won't know that I covered the mic. I don't put it in there. (laughs) The mic still picks up her secrets. I'm going to put my hand above the mic. <laughs> you magically won't hear me, listeners. <laughs> so funny. Fred, though. Eight times a day. <laughs> Eight times a day. Wow. I don't even know what to say. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.